How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with being people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming as well as some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual thing. How can your story be good that it isn't the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the culture is How is that actually It seems like so much of the church's exclusive, anti-critical thinking, homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. The church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy, and today our guest is Brian McLaren. Brian is an author of about 20 books. He's a speaker, he's an activist, he's a public theologian. He's a former college English teacher and pastor, and he is truly a leading voice for the future of a new kind of Christianity. He is also a faculty member of The Living School and a podcaster with his new podcast, Learning How to See, which are both a part of the Center for Action and Contemplation. He's also an Auburn Senior Fellow and works closely with the Wild Goose Festival, the Fair Food Program, Vote Common Good, and Progressive Christianity. He has appeared on All Things Considered, Larry King Live, Nightline on Being and Religion and Ethics News Weekly. His work has also been covered in Time, New York Times, Christianity Today, Christian Century, The Washington Post, Huffington Post, CNN, and now as a part of that whole thing, the Church Needs Therapy podcast. <laughs> Brian is married to his wife Grace, and they have four adult children. And is that right? Five grandchildren. That's right. In fact, uh, they're all running around in the yard as we speak. Oh man, so fun! Part of the winter down here with us. Yeah, that's awesome. Brian, man, I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thanks. When you were giving that biography, I was thinking, gosh, it's taken me a long time to finally get to the Church Needs Therapy podcast. So, man, I'm happy. I mean, when I probably first came across you like 12, 13 years ago, I figured you were building towards some crescendo. So, <laughs> uh, It's all downhill from here, but I'm really glad to be with you. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, your new book, Faith After Doubt, so good. I've sort of, with the, with the community of faith, the church, my wife and I co-founded a lead out here. I have a friend of mine, another pastor here, who's doing the teaching this week. So I had the chance to just mow through it the last couple of days, which is fun because now with the, the stage of where my kids are and some of the responsibilities I have and other creative stuff, I'm like, I just don't read like I used to. There's no way. And I accept that. But the last couple uh, of days I, I've been, yeah. yeah. The last couple of days. I was just going to say, I remember, that, I remember that feeling of whenever I pick up a book, somebody was climbing into my lap. So I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. I, I do read. It's just usually like a Moana book or we're looking for stuff <laughs> inside. <laughs> you, this is such a great book, such a timely book. And I think expresses one of the great unique gifts you have as a teacher and as a writer to synthesize large amounts of information systems, establish connections, and then make it accessible in a practical way for people to grow and to evolve like we want, like you want to see. And you begin this book with the story 
of a, a freshman in college feeling this spiritual battle in this class that she's learning about evolution. You know, a story about a 14-year-old boy coming to terms with same-sex attraction while he's in a youth group where he's hearing sermons that don't make him feel safe. You know, a story about a pastor in her 30s thinking that because she's wrestling with doubt about what she believes, it might mean she's supposed to resign, along with other examples of these moments of doubt in real, concrete, everyday people's lives. Why do you begin these, this book with these concrete examples in these stories? Well, I think uh, one reason is people who are going through doubt very often feel they're alone. Mm. Um, because in so many of our churches still today, it's doubt is never talked about or it's only preached against. Mm. And so there's all these people who think I'm the only one, I'm the only one. And uh, when you're the kind of person, as I imagine you are, Kevin, where people come to you with their doubts because they think you won't step on them and, and, you know, condemn them, um, you start realizing, yeah, there's so many people out there. Uh, and even though the details of different stories vary, I think many people, they read someone else's story and they see, oh, yeah, they're real, real points of, uh, of contact. But I also think there are some people who don't understand how desperate other people feel about their doubts. And so sometimes hearing those kinds of stories of other people uh, who are struggling in ways they can understand will help them have more empathy. So I guess those would be the two main reasons. Yeah. Yeah, no, those, I think that's, it was such a, such a brilliant, and I, I like, I always appreciate such a pastoral move. So I'm like, those personal stories draw us in immediately into the universal sort of unfolding story that you do the rest of the book. And, you know, Kevin, I'll just tell you, it's sort of, uh, ironic. We're having exactly this conversation literally right before I got on this, uh, call with you, I was reading an email that somebody sent me who just read the book. Mm. And he's someone, I'm going to guess he's in his 50s, and he just came out as gay mm. uh, recently. And he said, when I read that very first paragraph about a boy in a youth group who, who's gay, um, he said, that was me. He said, I wow. had exactly that experience. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. That's yeah, the particular, the concrete, always a, the, the concrete yeah. even drawing us into the cosmic you know, yes. movements that we see is so, when you, right, right when I saw that, I'm like, this is just, when you began the stories, I'm like, this is it. Like, this is so good. Just starting it like that. You know, for people who aren't aware, your life and your work has put you in this really unique place of observing, traveling, writing, and speaking about the state of faith, the state of the church today, globally, but even more specifically in North America and in the U.S., what is, you zoom out a little bit, what is a zoomed out perspective on what is happening right now that you see spiritually or with the church and how this book speaks into that moment? Well, you know, uh, here, here in the U.S., obviously, the, uh, for, all, for all of us who are in the U.S., uh, these last four years have been quite a, a wild ride because mm. for white evangelicals, 81% of them were supportive of Trump. Uh, 19% weren't. Um, for white Catholics, it, it, you know, it went from somewhere near 60% down to around 50%. Um, but what's happened uh, in, in congregations across denominational lines 
is people have started to feel like I'm in the same religion and I'm in the same church with some of these other people, mm. but we couldn't see the world more differently. Mm, Our set okay. of moral priorities could, couldn't be more different. Our understanding of what the greatest problems we face could be more different. And I think there are a whole lot of people who they just look at the whole picture and they say, if this is Christianity, it just doesn't make sense to me. Mm. And uh, so that's, that's very, very far reaching. Um, and it has one way of working out in predominantly white churches and then in uh, predominantly black or Asian or Latino, there'd be uh, uh, Native American, there'd be all different, you know, flavors of this. So, uh, but what is shared is this sense that it's not just one little individual doctrine I have trouble with. It's increasingly the whole picture. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the result is that over uh, the last, well, my lifetime, you know, five or six decades, um, every generation has a lower percentage of retention mm. than the generation before. Yeah. And what that, and, and, uh, and a huge part of that is because people just say, I can't believe this anymore. Sometimes it's doubts about God. Sometimes it's doubts about theology. Sometimes it's doubts about the church and the mm-hmm. claims it makes for itself. But yeah, you put all that together and just, uh, I, I hope we can get some honest conversation about this. Yeah, even, even to respond to something right there that's so interesting that I've seen and you probably have seen too is for people who are struggling with, you know, we have this shared, even for people who want to have a broad embrace, you know, of who's yeah. in the church with a capital C and people who want to hold yeah. on to that and fight for that. But what's interesting is, you know, you use the four stages, you know, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and then harmony. And it's interesting to see people who come from a faith tradition who will actually have more resonance with people from other faith traditions or outside of a, of a concrete faith tradition, but who are in a similar stage as yes, them. Yes. Because yes. they're, they think about what it means to be human. They think about inclusivity with the same kind of embrace. They think about justice in a similar way. And I think that adds to some of the confusion because they're like, I come from this tradition, but that person, because of the stages of faith, that even if they don't name it as such, because of the stages of faith, we actually are going to more naturally be allies, be friends who are working for the same thing. And even that increases and adds to the, what does it mean to then be a part of my tradition when that's happening? Have you ever, do you like sense, see that oh, going my. on? That, that's, that's very well said. And when you say that, it brings to mind, I won't go into the whole story, but a, a really brilliant Muslim uh, scholar and theologian and statesman who I had the honor of getting to know. Oh gosh, I think it was, uh, it was, eight or 10 years ago now. And we had worked together on a project and we were on a phone call following up on that project. And before we got off the phone, he said to me, Brian, I have to tell you something. He said, when I'm talking with you, I feel I have more in common with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though you're a Christian and I'm a Muslim, I feel I have more in common with you than I do with most of my Muslim brothers Mm -hmm. and sisters. Um, and he said, I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but it f- just something feels that we're on the same wavelength. Mm, well, yeah. I, I think th- here's something interesting about that. 
I think people at stage three and stage four could feel that very much across mm, religious exactly. traditions. People at stage one wouldn't feel it at that stage mm. of simplicity because the way they define their faith would put them at odds with people. Exactly. But here's the interesting thing. Um, for outsiders, a person in that simplicity stage who's Christian or Muslim or atheist, they sort of look and feel similar. It's the way Absolutely. they argue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's so good. And that's that's just something I've always, you know, you personally experience, you know, but then also yeah. you recognize why there is that resonance, why some people say specifically who are Christians do find themselves connecting more drawn to or desiring to be a part of some movements towards justice, some form of organized thing or whatever it is yeah. where the people may not come out of that same tradition, but they're in similar places of how they live and move and kind of be in this world. So, as yeah. You, as you say so, that, I'll just say, I, I, as you say that, I'm remembering uh, many years ago, I read a powerful book by uh, Chaim Potok called My Name is Asher Lev. If people like to read novels, it's just a beautiful novel, but it's about this young guy who grows up in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in New York City, and he so happens to have artistic skills. So imagine what it's like to be a 14-year-old boy who's an artistic prodigy who then is asked, who takes an art class, and he's supposed to sketch a nude, right? Mm. Which would just be so absolutely forbidden in his community and he's torn between his artistic self mm. and and the requirements of his community well I, look i've never been ultra orthodox jew and i have no artistic talent uh in that way but as i read that book from such a different setting i this is what it felt like for me growing up in a fundamentalist christian family yeah uh, yeah 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 that's good you know this whole you know, such a theme, obviously the title faith after doubt and such a big part of this book is showing how one, obviously doubt is not, you know, an opposite of faith and actually how doubt is woven into the very journey of faith itself. How doubt is something you work through, but it's also you, something you carry with yourself yeah. all the time. And it's not something you try to get rid of. And it's actually something that helps you know, grease the wheels of evolution and of growth. And at, during a critical moment in your own journey of growing and changing as a human being, as a person of faith, and also as a pastor at the time, you share a moment that you had during a walk. And you write, for the first time it dawned on me, there's a difference between doubting God and doubting my understanding of God. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such an important phrase that captures such a deep truth yeah. about how we move through this, why we're always growing and moving. So when that dawned on you, what was that like? And why is that distinction so critical for a person who's always growing, changing and evolving? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, one of the major discoveries that sort of came to me, I saw more deeply as I was writing this book is the social dimension of faith. And so the faith community I grew, grew in made it sound like to love God is to agree to a set of ideas or doctrines about God. Mm. So that if I start to question those ideas, I'm actually breaking faith with God, God's, God's self, you know. And I, I, I mean, it's in a way, as you just said it, I thought, gosh, that's so obvious. 
But I think a whole lot of us, it takes, it's very dangerous for us to come to that realization. Mm. So to be honest, I don't think that, well, as I remember exactly where I was walking along a trail along the Potomac River in Maryland, when I, that sort of inner conversation had happened. And I think what it felt like to me is this could help me in my relationship with God. Mm-hmm. This won't help me in my relationship with Christians <laughs> because, uh, because uh, if I doubt these ideas about God that sort of are the glue that holds us together, mm-hmm. um, I'm still going to be in every bit as much trouble as them. But it was yeah. this feeling. But may, I, and, and again, as soon as you say it, it seems so obvious. But I thought, if God really understands me and loves me, God knows I'm not trying to be bad. I'm just trying to be honest, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's... I just think that phrase, I'm going to say it again for people, there's a difference between doubting God and doubting your understanding of God. You can say there's a difference between God and your current version of God that you carry, right? These are all connected. And it's always been unique, right? Pastorally, we're journeying with people, guiding people, right? We're involved in people's lives. And my experience was unique in the sense of I didn't grow up in the church, So Mm -hmm. I didn't have those unconscious sort of ideological ties to a culture, ties to like a system of belonging, right? Ties to where my whole identity and social sense of self was never in the church. You know what I mean? (laughs) And my, even my own first experience of God was I'm 17, seen through my illusions on a silent journey towards truth with no guides and no mentors and nobody there just on my own. And I have this spontaneous, immediate awakening moment with God while I was 18, while I was on mushrooms. And so my experience was transformative encounter. My experience was experience. My experience was not so much the knowing through my understanding, but rather the being known by. And then yes. the, the conceptual framework came later. You know what I mean? So yes. Yes, yes, from yes. early on, I was like, well, you're da- whatever you're doubting, that thing, that's not the core of yes. this. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. but, but exactly. obviously, but leading and pastoring, obviously like going to Bible college eventually and getting, it was like, I didn't grow up on the settlement. I grew up on this open field. And then I got brought back for two to three years, like just enough where I'm like, I get it. You know, like even thinking of like the spiral, it was enough blue to like ground me in all of the rules. And I loved it. And I appreciated it to become the foundation for me to keep going, you know, in that phrase, the difference between, I really actually think the first time I heard that phrase, there's a difference between God and your theology of God yes. was in your book, A Generous Orthodoxy yes. in like yes. the summer of probably 2008 ish. Yeah. You know, so even now it's amazing how what you were saying back then is still so where people are right now because you were, you know, from my perspective, like further ahead on that journey. So Yeah, I want to jump to something a little different because people don't always know the struggle of leaders and pastors, right? It's a unique journey. It's something I tell people I love and I embrace, but also in many moments I wouldn't wish upon anybody, you know, just because of the unique thing that it is, right? And 
You know, you quoted Upton Sinclair where he said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it, right? Because you talk about how as a leader, you already mentioned it before, the moment you doubt and start to make connections, you, your mind like immediately sees all the implications of that's what they're going to think. That's what this means. My financial, I have kids, they have, you know, tuitions or whatever. You can make those connections. So yes. you can lose when you're doubting what's considered orthodoxy, you can lose the affirmation of authority. You can lose a sense of belonging. You can genuinely lose relationships over it. So talk yeah. to the people a little bit so they can get a better feel of the weight of doubting and growing for leaders specifically. You know, what is at stake for leaders when they grow and evolve yeah. in doubt? Why is it hard to grow and doubt and to change as a pastor yes. or a leader? Yeah. Yeah, boy, so many stories are just flashing through my mind as you ask that question uh, that maybe help make it concrete. Uh, I think of a fellow who became a, a dear friend who is the pastor at a uh, charismatic megachurch. And this is a church that, if I can say it in a crass way, the product they delivered every Sunday was a big bang. It was a big high. Mm. Loud music and people jumping up and down and dancing and shouting. And it was super emotional, right? And I forget what, where we met. It, it might have been through a funeral or something. Anyhow, we met. And, and because I was from outside of that circle, he confided to me. He mm. said, the thing I got to tell you is I see these people prophesying and dancing and shouting on Sunday, but I know that that one beats his wife on Friday. And I know that that one has serious mental illness problems that he won't get treatment for because mm. he thinks it's of the devil and he needs medication and he's destroying his wife and his children because of his mental illness. And I know this one, this, and I know that one, that. And he said, it makes it really hard for me to stand up there every Sunday. So it, it, his, his doubts were brought on by realizing that the, the church sort of created this illusion that everything was great and that some of the people who were the most heroic and spiritual, he sort of knew the underside of that, right? And, um, and he eventually left ministry. Uh, I don't think has any kind of spiritual involvement anymore right. just because it, it, he just, it just wore him out. And I think part of what happened is every Sunday he had to pretend that he was into it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think he not only lost faith, maybe, I don't know if he lost faith in God, but he certainly lost faith in the work of the church, sure. but he also lost faith in himself, to be honest, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, and it, I think it did serious damage to him. But so many pastors, if they're going through private questioning, they just think there's no room for me to stay Christian. The, the story I tell um, at the beginning of the book of a young pastor who got fired from his church because he changed the tiniest doctrine of eschatology for people who know what mm. that is, you know, about the end times, which is mm. so highly speculative. Mm. He changed it in the tiniest way. And that was enough. He was fired. Wow. And the people who helped fire him were his grandparents and his parents. <laughs> oh so, man. I mean, how do people survive that kind of trauma, you know, but, and it's all done in the name of God and orthodoxy and, and, and all the rest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's something like I'm, I'm 36 and I have friends who lead and pastor in different areas, different contexts. And I've been a part of their lives and seen what happens when 
you evolve or grow beyond the thing, the container that you built in a community. Yes. yes. And yes. it's tough, you know, it's not like, yes. you know, we all need to take responsibility for our individual lives. And I think to be a person of faith is to be a person of alignment and integrity. And while I agree with that, I also know the concrete realities of what that does to a pastor, the, the, both pastors, their marriage, the kids' relationships. You know, there is a huge cost for authenticity and integrity as a leader. You know what I mean? So that's what, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people in Christian ministry, I'm so sad to say this, but they've never had a model of anything other than pretense. Mm. And and I, I look back, I bet you had this somewhere along the way too, or else you're just having to model it for others probably through this podcast among other things. But when I was just, I was 18 years old and I was part of this uh, kind of intensive Christian community. And we met for a short time together every morning for morning prayer and then we'd go off to do our work. And one morning the leader of our community came in, sat down and he said, look, everybody, uh, my wife and I had a big fight last night. Uh, We aren't speaking to each other this morning. He said, I hardly slept a wink. He says, I feel like hell today. And I am in no position to lead a devotion or lead in prayer. If anybody's going to pray, I need somebody to pray for me. And then he said, he said, I hope our community is mature enough for you to handle me being that honest. Mm. And like, I remember every word of what he said, because I thought, what a relief. Here's, Here's a leader who is not covering up and pretending. It's, it's worth so much, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. I think for me, when I went into like my own sort of journey around like 16, 17, I just had one question that was really beneath every other question is all I want to know is what is real. That's yes. it. That's all. That's like yes. the only question that still drives yes. me today, right? Yes. And yes. as a teenager, my model, when you talk about models, like I didn't know there, what a pastor was. I never met a pastor. I never new youth groups existed. Sometimes I joke around, like none of the kids in my school ever invited me to youth group. Was I that like far gone? No one ever told me about youth group. And, but when I look back and every person I was the most drawn to like culturally and the most sort of inspired by, it was just, they had the courage to be themselves, even in a world that wasn't ready for them. Alan Iverson as a basketball player growing up in hip hop, the artist that I love. And even as I got older and like entered more into the Christian world of I'm going to Bible college. Now this is my first time around Christians and that experience. I think when I connected, when I first was reading you or Rob or even Richard Rohr and and many other people, I'm like, of what they're saying resonates. And I do sense that the spirit's drawing me forward through this. But I was like, but at the same time, what inspires me about these people is really just the courage to be themselves. Like that's what, like the simplicity of like wherever they are right now, they're doing that. And that's all I care about wherever it is. You know what I mean? So yes, yes, yeah, yeah. That's beautifully said. And that's what, you know, there's so much about that that we could unpack, I think, but in, in the terms I use in the book, you can feel that and get that in stage one and it'll keep drawing you forward. And then it'll keep drawing you forward through stage two and it'll keep Mm. drawing you forward through stage three. That's a trustworthy kind of thing that will keep drawing you forward. I think. Absolutely. 
Yeah. What was, what was funny when, you know, I had that experience like 2003, this moment with God that literally reoriented my whole life. I left where I, I moved out here to Hawaii. I left where I was. I stopped everything. I was supposed to play sports in college. I was like, this is it. This is all I've ever looked for, you know? Yeah. And my girlfriend was out here at the time, who's now my wife. So, you know, we've been in like back and forth in Hawaii for a long yeah. time. And then I go to Bible college three or four years later, and that's my first time around Christians, really. You know, yes. and it, was a, it was a great experience, and it was a very eye-opening experience, too. Yes, yes. And yes. at the end of my first or second year there, someone on campus said to me, you know, you should be really careful how you talk here. And I was like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? Because, you know, again, like, I don't know, like, Christian culture. I don't know what they're right, saying. right. And they told me, well, if you keep saying things like that, people are going to think you're emergent. Because <laughs> this is like 2008, right? This is 2008. And I was like, damn, really? I better find out what that is. <laughs> and so and, but that, 2008, that was the summer. I was like, well, and that just sparked my interest. I better find out what that is. And that summer, in terms of, stages of faith and how I think about things. Cause I was in a very blue, very, you know, stage yes. two, stage one, stage yes. two environment at the time. I was like, okay, Tony Jones, the new Christians, a bunch of Brian McLaren books, bunch of, like whoever everybody's connected and there's footnotes, you just keep following. Yeah. And I yeah. was like, Whoa, like these people, I can, I know they are speaking 20 yards, 30 yards ahead of where I am, 20 clicks past. And I just know what they're saying is true and they're leading me forward. And what was funny was, you know, after that summer, my wife's hearing me and my friends talk and, you know, just having conversations and she's getting kind of worried, you know? Yes, and I used to, yes, I used to spend, cause I've always spent so much time in silence. I remember stories I joke with my wife, I would spend time in silence, like in front of our old fire. And my wife would come out of the room and she'd be like, Kev, but Jesus, right? Still Jesus. <laughs> but she, she would, but because she was a little like worried, because she's like, what are you challenging? Sure. She's never heard people like, and I get it. Like there's, she never heard those questions. I said, babe, look, let's go to this thing. It was this conference called the Emerging Church in New Mexico in 2008 or 2009. It was like you, Roar, whoever else was there, Shane Claiborne. Yes. Because yes. my wife's very like embodied. So I'm like, babe, just come. And we go yes. there. We drive with her mom, like, you know, from California. And it's funny because it's a lot of it's a lot of old Catholics, a lot of old white people there, you know, because Aurora. And yes. she's there and she's like, Oh, I get it. Like, okay, it's safe. And I was like, sweet. So I could like keep going where she didn't have to be concerned. <laughs> but it is that goes to show like the journey growth can feel dangerous and to yes. a threat to people who aren't there yet, who don't kind of see yeah. it as an expanding thing. All right. I want, I want to get back to some of the questions I originally have, so I don't keep going on about that. In following upward, Rohr quotes Robertson Davies with this quote that says, one learns one's mystery at the price of one's innocence. In our journey with doubt, what is that quote? mean when we doubt and grow what do we gain right he's talking about this mystery and also what do we lose along the way because they're both yeah. happening simultaneously well, could you repeat that quote for me the quote just think you know one of those quotes you have at the beginning of your chapter or yes, quote yes, somebody that yes. says one learns one's mystery at the price of one's innocence yes yes so we're uh, gaining I, I, this but we're losing this yes 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 well, um, 
Yeah. So let, let me use a, a concrete example. Um, uh, you know, on January 6th, a whole lot of us were watching television, watching the U.S. Capitol be stormed, right? And uh, by almost all white people. And for a whole lot of white people, they have never ex- felt like they were racist. They've never had, they've never burned crosses in anybody's yard. They, they've lived their lives thinking, everybody's equal, this isn't a problem, this is a problem in the past. And then they see that happen and they think if black people had been storming the Capitol, they would have been mowed down, they would have been mm-hmm. shot. They, you know, and suddenly they think, oh my gosh, maybe it's been there all along and I didn't mm-hmm. see it. Mm-hmm. So there are these kind of disillusionments that mm-hmm. take away yeah. our innocence. Yeah. And then they think, gosh, Colin Kaepernick and everybody complained about him kneeling he was just kneeling and these people are angry and they're, you know, ready to lynch Mike Pence. Right. So mm-hmm. they start saying something. And, and it's the, so that, that loss of innocence, the world becomes more complex than you thought. Mm, That's absolutely. if we were talking about moving from stage one to stage two, but then even more, the world is downright perplexing. It's not mm. just that I had the answer before and it was a wrong answer. Now I have the right answer. When you reach that third stage, you say, you know, it's hard to have any answer that you think is going to be final because I've learned so much already and I'm sure I'm still going to learn more in the future. And th- so there is a loss. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're right. There is, yeah. there's a loss. You know, a huge part of it is centered around this word certainty mm-hmm. um, because what a lot of us think, we, we think we're, following faith, but what we're really following is certainty. And here's the irony about certainty. Certainty is uncertain. (laughs) Certainty is a confidence that you're right, but we all know people who are certain they're right and we can tell they're not. Mm. Um, And so so part of the interesting loss is loss of confidence in certainty. Um, yeah. it's, you know, I, I love music and years ago, I, um, uh, I, I wrote a song. Let's see if I can remember the lyric cause it fits in here. Um, I have, uh, uh, I have my doubts about certainty. Mm-hmm. It's not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> and and, and yeah. when you when you start to realize, wow, certainty can become really dangerous. White supremacists are certain they're superior, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. they're bittersweet because you're better off to have lost that illusion. But there was a lot of comfort having that illusion. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I think one of the reasons why I asked that is, there's this almost like this perpetual state and movement while you're growing and doubting and changing and and rediscovering and and going a new way where there's this perpetual state of letting go and thus like grief, you know, like if you are over identified with any specific belief or a sense of self, then when that belief is challenged, you let go of it, it feels because it genuinely is a death. Like I can remember even that first summer. And I don't even, like I said, I don't have those strong unconscious, like ideological ties. I didn't have as much to lose. I feel like, yes. but I can remember there were moments where I'd be reading a certain book that summer. I remember one that was like by a pool in my first apartment after I was married, I was reading Doug Padgett's a Christianity worth believing. 
Yes. And, and speaking of like end times rapture stuff, when I went to this school, cause I didn't grow up with that belief. I was like, I don't have any argument against this cause I don't know any other options, but this can't be <laughs> the story of the universe. Yes. I just remember thinking that like, I just kind of shelved it. I was like, I don't believe that, but I don't know what to say right now. And then yeah, that yeah. summer, you know, there's this, you know, new creation, this movement towards healing. We're a part of this. And all those things started to click for me. And there was just one line he said in the book where it all clicked and I got it and it was awesome. But I immediately knew that it put me at odds with everybody in my school and my teachers. And I, my heart sunk into my stomach. You know, it was like, I almost, like I felt nauseous for a second because I got, I'm like, yes, but in order to say yes to this, which my integrity and my desire for what's real requires me to, I get immediately what I have to say no to. And that's hard. That's going to be costly. You know what I mean? So how does, you know, what that idea of saying yes, and you know what you say no to those moments of like, wow, am I really going here? Like, how does that, let's think about this. How does that get in the way of somebody you know, on this path towards like growth and towards change? Well, let's maybe, first of all, I I can't describe that any better than you did. You just Mm -hmm. described that perfectly. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm thinking uh, Jesus comes along. Let's, you know, for folks Mm -hmm. who are, who, 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 you know, take Jesus seriously as, as I certainly do. um, I can imagine Jesus uh, giving the Sermon on the Mount and saying, you have heard it said, mm. but I say to you, mm. and I can he- hear a whole lot of people thinking, hold it. He's questioning what every scribe and Pharisee and elder and teacher of the law yeah. has taught. Yeah. You He's don't think about it. You're like, that's that. traumatic. That's yes. traumatic for, this is hundreds. This is, you know, long, this has been a part of like those moments are traumatic in ways we don't think. And, and for us as Christians, we sort of take it for granted that, uh, oh, yeah, Jesus is right. Well, if you've been told all of your life that eating kosher food is right and not working on the Sabbath is right, and Jesus comes along and says, it doesn't really matter what goes into your mouth. And what really matters is what comes out of your heart. You go, hold it. Moses said what really matters is what goes into your mouth. And then so he says, you know, is it, is it wrong to do work, the work of healing on the Sabbath? Um, mm. Because if I don't heal somebody, I'm doing evil. So it's not a choice between working or not working. It's a choice between working for healing or working to leave people in their suffering. Mm. Um, so I can just imagine people saying, forget this guy. I'm never coming back to one of his sermons on the mountain again. <laughs> yeah. And my, and my, and my dad, my dad, my dad won't let me. I'm out. <laughs> that's, right. That's, right. that's right. And then you, you think you fast forward a few more years and, and Jesus is gone. And Paul is one of these early Christian leaders. And he writes a letter to the Galatians and he says, circumcision or uncircumcision, it's utterly meaningless. That's what he says mm-hmm. in Galatians 5. And you just think that would be traumatic for people. So I think what we have to say to people is that, listen, if you're a Christian, you're in a tradition that you're, our founder was willing mm-hmm. to free people out. And that doesn't mean it's easy, but it, it's why he used a radical term with a guy like Nicodemus when he said, hey, look, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law you got to go back to the beginning. It's like, you got to start all over again. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it, it's, it, it is. And, and you know what, at that point, 
oh, it, it's it's psychologically traumatic. Uh, when yeah. you say, like when you say the church needs therapy, I mean, in a sense, no wonder we need therapy because because growth is hard. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's, you know, I'm sure that, you know, you're so conscious of and, you know, you see Jesus pointing people back to their texts, to their scriptures, to their prophets in order to draw them forward, right? It's just that genius yeah. of the spiritual teaching of it. it's the seeds of all this are with you and already, and we're just watching them. We're, we're helping them blossom now, right? And like Jesus, you know, talking to the Pharisees, quoting Isaiah. And that's always one of my favorite things when we, we talk about growing up and waking up in our church or we talk about whatever it is. I'm like, all right, for those of, I love when Roar talks, it cracks me up. Cause he's like, I mean, I guess if you need a Bible verse for this, here you go. You know, when he talks about things, <laughs> yes, yes. but whether you go back to Jesus saying what you said, Paul doing all of those rat, multiple things like that, that would have been so traumatic. Or one of the things I'll show people is even the movement of how the scriptures talk about eunuchs in the text. It's like yes. Deuteronomy 23, they're out. Isaiah 56. Yes. Well, I guess if they keep the Sabbath, then to the story and, you know, Acts 8, Philip's yes. like, well, why, why can't he be baptized on the spot? You know, I'm like, the, yes. the scriptures are showing us this forward movement. Yes. And for people who want to take the scripture seriously, as I do, I'm like, it's there. You know, it's, it's yes. all, we're, we're continuing that, but this forward movement is there. And that's when you can see for a lot of people that are like, you know, text, text authority. I'm like, the movement's there and you can see the people who need that in that moment. It just, that all yes. clicked and it's so powerful. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. You let's see 1045, 20 more minutes in this. I'm going to skip past this. This is, this is a, a quote from the book that you write. You say, but belief, the act of holding a set or system of beliefs is not the same thing as faith to even continue some of the themes we're talking about. And the difference between beliefs and faith, I think, because that's such a, that's a movement for that's so experiential. It's like when you said yes. the difference between understanding of God and God. Once yes. you get it, you're like, that's just, it's so obvious, you know, but, but there's yes. a point where it's not. You know, it's not it's obvious not, right. to make that distinction yeah. conceptually. And Matt, for people who haven't experienced that as thoroughly yet, imagining a new relationship with our beliefs, right? We're not getting rid of beliefs, but our relationship with our beliefs does change. That's a challenge for people who always assume your faith is the beliefs you have, yes. right? You quote Alan Watts, who says, belief clings, but faith lets go. So talk a little bit about that importance, the distinction between beliefs and then yes. faith in this movement towards revolutionary love like you talk about as we move through these stages. Yes, yes. So, uh, uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I wrote this whole book without ever spending a lot of time trying to give a very technical definition of faith. Mm. Um, uh, because I think faith is mysterious and faith means a lot of different things to people in different places. Mm -hmm. But if I were to try to give a simple definition of faith, I would say faith is a way of orienting ourselves toward life that centers on hope and love. So I'm putting together, you know, faith, hope, and love. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a way of life that's oriented toward hope and especially oriented toward love. And so it's interesting in, in the Bible, 
even in the New Testament, even in the book of Romans, you know, that a lot of people consider Paul's magnum opus, he, he points back to Abraham as the father of faith. Mm. And what's interesting is when you think about Abraham, Abraham had no beliefs. I mean, he had, he had no beliefs. He so had no understanding. Uh, uh, you know, he, he had this encounter. He, he's living in Ur, a city called Ur, mm. and he gets this message somehow coming to him uh, that you should leave your father's house and you should go to the place I'm going to show you. Mm. So his basic call is to become a refugee. Um, Jews today still call Abram a wandering Aramean. Mm. He goes out wandering on this quest. You know, you described, uh, Kevin, your sense, I'm just looking for what's real. Mm. And he has this. And then as he goes on the journey, he has this sense a uh, message comes to him somehow. You're going to be the father of a great nation and all the nations that will be blessed through you. So, there's no understanding of Trinity, no understanding of heaven and hell, no understanding of something called salvation. None of those concepts exist for him. Um, faith is what puts him on his journey. Uh, it's, it's the quest that gives shape to his life. Um, I think what unfortunately happened, and it, it happened rather, uh, you know, it happened about four centuries in, in the Christian story, is that the Christian faith stopped being so much a way of life and became more and more a system of beliefs Absolutely. for the majority of people. And one of the things about a system of beliefs is that, le that leaders can use it to always test your loyalty. Do you believe this? Mm. Then you're in. Mm. Do you believe that? You're going to get kicked out. And whenever those sort of beliefs become the basis for punishing or giving rewards, I think we pollute the whole thing because now, am I saying I believe this because I understand it and it actually seems to be real? Or am I saying it because I know you'll kick me out if I don't Absolutely. and I'll get all kinds of great perks if I say that I do. So yeah. that's why this idea of a way of life to me is so much, it, it, it resonates so much more deeply with what has actually brought me life in my own experience. And it's that thrust, as you say, that you just see through the scriptures. Mm. It's not that beliefs constantly change, but the consistent Absolutely. thing is this way of life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and conveniently and unconsciously beliefs don't require that much no. of you. No, no. You know what I mean? I remember when I was at, cause I, I did a, a couple I did like three years at Fuller. And at that point, Ralph Watkins, who's at Columbia in, in Atlanta now, he was the head of like um, the black theology department and black church studies. So I was like specifically with him studying like black and womanist theology. And Kelly Brown Douglas, one of the early womanist theologians wrote the black Christ. And in that book, she's critiquing the creeds, right? Yes. And it's like, creeds are great. They're there. They're part of the great tradition. You know, they're, they're love them. They're here. It's awesome. But she's like, when something is just a metaphysical belief that requires nothing from your body and says nothing about who Jesus was in the gospel, she's like, that is what propped up, you know, the white slaveholder Christianity. Cause you can believe those things and still be racist. You can believe those things and still uphold an entire system that's leveraged against one or two or three groups of people and only helps one. And that was definitely, you know, an eye opening thing at the time where you're seeing and that's what I'm sure you emphasize and I do too. It's like, you're not, I'm not saying beliefs don't matter, but what I am saying is faith 
as this journey, as this quest, as this orientation towards receptivity of love, of faith, risk, whatever it is, is it's more, it includes beliefs, but it transcends them. They're important, yeah. but they're just not the whole thing. Yes. You know yes. what I mean? That's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what you, and those few of those distinctions you made here are just like in different ways, bringing people back or calling people forward to beliefs matter, but it is a different relationship with those than it yeah. has been historically. It's not everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Exactly. A way I like to say it is beliefs matter, but they're not the point. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, That's so good. You know, there's, um, I want to end with something in a little bit, some pastoral responses for you to different people who might be listening. Because that's one of the things I've always appreciated while you're speaking, you know, truths that would be received in a prophetic sense, challenging, subversive. Even in the, in the last 12 or 13 years since I've been familiar with you and people are obviously, you've taken quite a bit of criticism over the years. I'm like, but he seems like the nicest guy, <laughs> you know, like he seems like you've always been so down to earth and pastoral and so obviously caring for actual people. And you were, I never were like just lobbying, like lobbying ideological bomb. It was never, like I never, it was, so anyways, we're going to, I'm going to end with a couple words you have for different people. But before that, I want to ask this question that I think about a lot and I think is a big part of how to grow and stay grounded in Christ, even as we question our beliefs, right? That's a fascinating thing. You can be less, I've, in many people in my church, I'm like, that person's less certain about what they believe about Jesus and more free in Christ right now. What a fascinating yes. thing in the journey. Yes. So yes. What, is, what do you see as the relationship between waking up and growing up, the relationship between spiritual intelligence, how do we see humanity, God, the world, and spiritual experience, this direct realization, knowing of and being known by God. Like as we keep doubting and keep growing, how does the relationship between these change? How does understanding the distinction between those two help us grow? How does spiritual experience that direct knowing of God hold us together as we're doubting, rethinking, and reimagining how we view God? Because I've always seen that as pretty central towards the ability to do it well and stay free, even as you're giving yourself the freedom to grow and change your beliefs. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I have to say, Kevin, I don't think there is a, full, a, a foolproof answer to any of this because mm. Anything, any way that we try to to point the way through this, we can mess it up and and we can, you know, foul it up. Um, and and even uh, like I use this language a lot. I talk about the importance of spiritual experience, um, and and a lot of times we put spiritual experience at at odds with tradition or with scripture or with reason and so on. But here's the deal. All, all of them happen in our brains mm. and our brains are really complicated. None of us even understand how they work and mm. psychologists and neurobiologists who study this. I mean, I love to read this stuff, but it's very, very clear that it's complicated beyond our, the ability of our brains currently to understand. Mm. Right. So uh, the thing I think that is so helpful and powerful in all this is for us to just get comfortable saying, 
I don't know. Mm. I don't have certainty. Mm. I don't have it all figured out. I'm just a guy, you know, I'm just, I've, I've been on this planet for 64, almost 65 years and it's a big planet and it's a big universe and I've done my best to learn everything I can, but the more I know, the more I realize it's way, way beyond me. And so, so I, I, I with that context, I say, I don't have it all figured out. And then I can and then I say, but you know, just like you were saying before, I've met a few people in my life who seem genuine mm-hmm. and something in me said, I really want what they have. And, um, and some of those people pointed me to Jesus and I, I started studying Jesus and I thought he's got that thing too. And I want that thing that he had some stuff he says still, I don't really get, but <laughs> there's something there, you know, that I really want. And you know what? Um, it doesn't seem to be the so- solely owned property of the Christian religion. Cause I meet mm. people in other places too. And I say, yeah, they've got that too. And, has to do with maturity and it has to do with authenticity and it has to do with integrity. And I'm drawn to that where, so if I'm just honest, that's a big part of what makes this thing go. And when I say that, here's what, what hits me. Um, Whatever Jesus was, according to the gospels, he was the kind of guy that when he walked along the beach and would say to you, Hey, come on, hang out with me, follow me. That people would say, yeah, you're the kind of guy I trust. I'm ready Mm -hmm. to leave. My that's fine to follow you. It, and it, what it is, is it's the influence of a life on a life rather than an ideology. I'm here to give you a sales pitch based on four points. And here they are. And I'm going to convince you this is logical. And I'm going to shame you if you disagree with any of my four points and trap you into having it. It's nothing like that. And, and that, I think, is what helps this forward. Um, and so Jesus then finishes and and picks some people and says, go teach other people what I've taught you. And he doesn't have a lot of control and he doesn't say, you have to stick with these seven statements and these nine propositions, go out and teach them to love one another as I've loved you. And that's where it's going to be. And that, if we could recover that, I think it would suddenly all of those beliefs, we wouldn't argue for them or against them. We just say, Mm. Oh, that's interesting. My, I'm after something else here. Does that does that answer your question? I'm not sure if it does. No, but. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, you're absolutely right. There's, for a further journey, there's no formula. There's, as T.S. Eliot says, there's hints and there's guesses and there's yeah. models and there's archetypes and there's people we're knowing. And we yeah. all have this unique, in the cosmic story, we all have an individual story and it happens differently. Like Thomas Merton meets a Hindu priest in his 20s who points him to St. Augustine and Thomas Akempis. How does like that Hindu monk became a missionary for Christ? Like those, we all have these unique stories. And I love one of the phrases you say, you're like, I'm just a guy. Because I think to myself, in your 20s, I'm going to create an entire system where I have mastery over the universe at almost 65. You're like, you know what? I'm just a guy and my grandkids are outside and I'm fighting for hope in this country and I'm working for peace. And okay. You know what I'm saying? Like that, the beauty and the power and the groundedness of that simplicity, right? That second naivete, that simplicity after the complexity, the further journey is one where to me, the real freedom of the future lies and where I think, you know, you're pointing people towards. And I think you yourself are a person who has helped pave that path, trailblaze that for people to follow along. That's the fascinating thing about 
individuals and the evolution of consciousness and, and growing through stages is the first people it's like when they're carving out those new neural pathways in that cosmic brain and now because of you went it's smoother for me to go there because you did the harder work of carving some of those things out when I didn't even know what a youth group was, you know, 98, 96, I was, you know, 12 and I didn't even know what people were thinking, but because of the, the courage of people who have kept following the drawing forward of the spirit in the name of Jesus. Yes. yes. And for people like me, those neural pathways are there. There's like these cosmic grooves as Wilbur says, and it's smoother for people yeah. like me, you know, and I'm so, grateful for that along with whether people realize it or not that's the power of that too is people's lives are smoother and they can grow through those paths quicker because of people and like you and so many others who have done the harder work of etching those out so here's my last thing before we end again i've already emphasized multiple times not just the profundity but the pastoral nature of brian which has always been it's just such a powerful thing to see so here's the last five minutes we have. Your pastor, there's faith after doubt. Here's your pastoral word. There's three words here for three different people. What is your pastoral for word for people who, when we think about faith after doubt, the one who's starting to doubt, seeing a couple cracks in the surface, but they're scared and they're, they're trying to repress it a little. The second one is the leaders who are doubting, but know what it'll cost them if they go all the way. And I'll repeat these. And the third one is the young, outspoken, I'm in complexity and perplexity, and I'm ready to burn every damn thing down. And everybody yes. in my past, I'll take them down too. So the first yeah. one, what, what's your pastoral word as they desire to grow? The person who's starting to doubt, but is scared where it might take them. Yeah, yeah. So the thing I would say is, if you get a sense that certain people are unsafe to talk to, Mm. don't keep going back to them with this mm, because so good. Um, if you keep going back to them, uh, they're, they're going to hurt you and mm. you're going, they're not ready for you to be honest with them. Yep. Yet. So good. Um, I'd, so what I'd say is if at all possible, find somebody that you can be safe with. Um, and if you, if you can't think of anyone in your circle of, you know, friends and family and so on, who seems like such a safe person. Um, you can go online and there's something called spiritual directors. And uh, there's a, a global organization of uh, spiritual directors. And I know spiritual directors sounds like people are going to direct you and tell you what to do, but mm -hmm. it's the very opposite. These are people whose training is to l be listeners and help you have a safe place to talk. And I'll just tell you, that I, that's played a, a huge role in my life. When I felt there was no one I could trust, I could go to someone who, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't be called a spiritual director. They, they wouldn't have that certification and you want to go to somebody who's been properly trained if, if they weren't able to help you. I'd say the same thing. If you have a swollen thyroid gland, then you mm. better go to an endocrinologist and you want mm. to find it. And I'd say if you, you know, are having heart palpitations, you actually want to go to a cardiologist. And when you're having these kind of spiritual questions, that's, you know, if you might have someone in your circle who's like that. Um, and don't, and, don't keep spending your energy trying to convince your mom to come with you on the journey because she might exactly not be right. coming with you. Exactly right. And then the thing I'd say, and if you can't find that and a person's found, um, 
church needs therapy podcast, the thing I'd say is podcasts are a place where you get to listen in on other people's conversations mm, about yeah, these things. And, yeah. and I just want to say thank you to you for the good work you're doing with this podcast, because I personally think um, that what Martin Luther's 95 theses were to the Reformation 500 years ago, I think podcasts are today. Because what mm. we need now are not new theses and not new statements and new arguments. I think what we need are new conversations. And, mm. and this is a place where that happens. Um, so that's what I'd say to, to that person. And obviously, in addition to finding some, at least one person with whom you feel safe and finding resources like podcasts, and obviously books can be a big mm-hmm. help here, but uh, sooner or later you need a friend. And that's, that's, mm. that, that's what I would say to look for. I think the other one, because I don't want to, I want to go past our time so we can stop with this one. The leaders who are doubting, but who hesitate to go all the way because they can foresee the cost. Yeah. I feel like you and, might uh, have a little personal experience with that. One. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, l- let me just say, uh, I would, um, I would recommend the same thing for them. Find a mm. spiritual director or someone you can be honest with, because if yeah. you're having to put up a front with everybody, um, bad things will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and one of the things a good spiritual director or mentor can do is help you figure out how to process this through in your, uh, in your concrete situation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, but you know, again, uh, there's an old Jackson Brown song that says, uh, if you have one real true friend, somehow all the other ones are easier to bear and, and having that person, at least one person with whom you can be honest becomes incredibly valuable. Um, And obviously I would encourage people to get away uh, because just getting away from people becomes important. Go to a retreat center, go take a hike, go camping, do what you need to do to get away and do the same in your innermost being with God even saying, God, I don't even know if you're there, or God, I don't know what you're like. Um, and I might just be talking to myself, but mm-hmm. whoever I'm talking to, it's important for me to be straight <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and to, be, to try to be clear about and, and not to fake, not to, not to carry on any pretense. Yeah. yeah. And, and your, your third category. I'd the third was like, you know, the young, outspoken, they're all like yeah. complexity, perplexity. You know, yes, the, yes, definitely yes. the transcending, maybe the struggle to include a lot of anger towards what was. Yes. And, and I'd say, look, you, you have every right to be angry. Um, you have every right to be angry, but be careful what you become. Um, mm. The philosopher Frederick Nietzsche said, uh, he said a lot of things that freak me out. Uh, <laughs> uh, that I, uh, but he said something that I think is a very good warning. Uh, and that is be careful when you fight the monster, lest you become the monster. Mm, so and um, there are so many people who fight fundamentalism with the same fury and venom and, and one certainty against another before yeah. they were certain they were right. Now they're certain these other people are wrong. And I would say any way forward is going to, that doesn't involve humility and empathy and compassion is not going to be a great way forward mm. for you or anybody else. So that that's what yeah. I'd say there. Yeah. And even, even with you can, and for them to know, you can still speak the prophetic, powerful truths. It's not about, you know, shaving those down at all. It's just also, yes. you can do it in a way that doesn't steal your own joy and soul along the way, 
you know, that's exactly. And, and doesn't think. wound other. And e- e- exactly. even though other people have wounded you, if you start wounding them back and, and one simple suggestion for folks in that situation is start saying, start your sentences with I and, and, and maybe try this. I could be wrong, but here's how it looks to me now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I used to think what you think, but now <clears throat> I'm having second thoughts. Uh, and, and to be confessional and take the risk yourself rather than going on the attack with others. That will be better for them because then you won't seem like a jerk that just makes mm-hmm. them defensive. You'll actually help them forward more, but it'll also be better for you because you won't be wounding people. And it's just not good to do that. Yeah, you know, I don't yeah. Think and that's so. also Brian's advice for what to do at Thanksgiving. So get ready for 2021. <laughs> right so for people listening in, Brian McLaren, the Church Needs Therapy podcast. So grateful, truly so grateful that you took the time to come on. His new book, Faith After Doubt. Go and get that. And then after that, buy the other 18 or 19 books. Then you could be familiar with the journey that many of us have been on over the years. So thanks again, Brian. What a pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Kevin.